This evening I want to explore the theme of anatta or not-self, as it's usually translated, and in this way complete the at least initial inquiry into these three core areas of insight that are really identified in the tradition as the three areas of liberating insight. First into anicca or impermanence, second into dukkha, variously translated as reactivity or struggle or suffering. And another one that I sometimes use is resistance to the present moment. Pretty good sense of what Duke is about, right? <laughs> I see smiles of recognition. <laughs> right. So one way that I like to talk about looking at these three areas is to uh, talk about them as the three ways of seeing that bring liberating insight. We've already had a way of talking about them as the three characteristics of phenomena. But I like to emphasize really the training aspect which can come out when we think about them or understand them as the three ways of seeing, or we could even think the three ways of training that bring liberating insight. Because the insight that we're looking at, or I should maybe say looking for, or developing in our practice uh, is liberating insight, freeing insight. I like the definition of insight that uh, I got from reading a book by Rob Rubea, actually of the same title, Seeing That Frees. We're interested in seeing that frees, liberating insight. So we explore Anicca, her impermanence, and we see increasingly how we fixate inaccurately on seeing things as permanent, including ourselves. We don't notice the uh, flow of experience until we train further. We also see how we're often uh, reactive compulsively and unconsciously often, uh, grasping at the pleasant and pushing away the unpleasant and spacing out on what is neither pleasant nor unpleasant. (laughs) And then we can come through this training, through this uh, way of seeing that freeze, we can also come to see that what we take to be self is a kind of construction. It's a well-ordered construction, (laughs) but that it's not ultimately of the nature of reality. That is a kind of construction on the flow of experience. So we get to see that. The great uh, Mahayana philosopher Nagarjuna, he said, fixations spawn thoughts that provoke compulsive acts. So the focus is on fixations that we have of our, in, our, in our minds about permanence, often about a sense that uh, grasping after the pleasant and pushing away the unpleasant will truly bring happiness. And then thirdly, that there's a kind of independent, permanent self. And so, One of the ways of talking about these three uh, was developed by Wes Nisker after a, uh, I think after a three month retreat at IMS, he said, life, this is a summary of the three. So listen for the three, they'll come quickly. (laughs) Life is hard, 
It'll put you through the changes, but don't take it personally. And so in, a, in our training in these three areas, what we do is we continually look carefully at each of the three, you know, sometimes one, sometimes the other. And then increasingly we come to see how they're all closely related. And I'll, I'll try to bring that out a little bit. So I'm gonna say a little bit more about um, uh, Anicca, her impermanence and dukkha, suffering, reactivity, struggle. And then I'll mostly talk about uh, not self. So in terms of impermanence, I want to build a little bit on Dara's talk. The Buddha once said that if we could perceive impermanence accurately, there would be no grasping, ignorance or self-centeredness, we would be liberated and not cling. And in fact, his last uh, recorded words were all conditioned phenomena are transient. Keep on practicing. (laughs) It's a paraphrase. (laughs) And interestingly also, uh, once the uh, 16th Karmapa, one of the great Tibetan teachers, who I was privileged to spend some time with. Uh, he died in 1980, so I, I met him when I was fairly young. Um, he he uh, made a trip to the US Congress and they didn't have a whole lot of time to talk with him, which was, you know, unfortunate. <laughs> and so as we, you might predict, they said, please tell me, tell us the essence of Buddhism. <laughs> And he said, everything changes. <laughs> and similarly, uh, Suzuki Roshi, the, the great Zen teacher was also asked, can you express Buddhism in a nutshell? Said the same thing, everything changes. So very central. And yet we, we don't really see change and impermanence clearly, we tend to we tend to think that, uh, that, that things and ourselves have a certain constancy, permanence, uh, independence, and so forth. And it's actually interesting to look at some of the recent uh, research from neurosciences because it can show some of why we see, see that way. You know, basically, um, the brain really likes things to be constant and simple. You know, one neuroscientist says, the brain likes routines, simplicity, and doesn't like consciousness. (laughs) Meaning, let's make everything automatic, right? And so we have all sorts of routines for all sorts of things. And there are all sorts of, there are hundreds in the brain, there are hundreds of conceptual metaphors and frameworks that we learn early in life that structure everything, that organize experience into concepts. And we tend to think of things as permanent for a few reasons. First of all, it's much more easy to do that from a practical point of view. And from the point of view of language, you know, some of us sometimes after practice have tried to use language in a way that really reflects impermanence. And it's kind of awkward, you talk about, okay, the the fluxating phenomena that I know as tree. It doesn't, you know, doesn't work too well, you know. And so partly for reasons of practicality and simplicity, we do that. There, there's uh, also a very interesting phenomena uh, that the, um, the mind actually takes in flickering phenomena and stitches them together. This is sometimes called flicker fusion. Things are actually flickering, but the mind brings everything together and fuses them together. There are also some properties of the retina uh, that there's, there's actually like an af, we're one of the few species that does this. A lot of other species is very different, but we have 
the retina works to have a kind of object constancy that other species uh, don't have. And so all this flicker fusion from uh, the point of view of practice leads, leads to a kind of uh, uh, confusion. <laughs> in, other, in other words, we, our minds construct something and then we buy into the construction and don't realize it's constructed. And to some extent practice for the sake of freedom deconstructs many of those constructions. And we've experienced that and in a very simple way. We learn to be with a sunset without all the concepts and routines. So we can actually be more directly with the sunset. Or be with another person without all these framing ideas and so forth. So essentially, you know, from a, from a more contemporary point of view, one of the ways we'll get at uh, not-self is, is to see that generally, you know, we, you know, a lot of this is done on a social and cultural level, we uh, construct a world that is constant and stable for practical reasons. And we have shared understandings of what things are, but we forget that we've created a construction. <laughs> And we live in that, and sometimes the constructions are helpful, and sometimes the constructions of mind are not helpful at all. They're very harmful, such as the one that Oren gave yesterday. You know, that, uh, was it Colonel Maynard, who had a certain construction of Native Americans, you know, where we can have very harmful constructions that really form the mind around whatever, race, gender, age, sexual orientation, and so forth. And so we can, you know, our practice is quite simple for learning more about impermanence. We want to really notice, especially the arising and the passing, much as in the guided meditation that Elisa gave us, uh, Saturday morning, where we learn how to just notice the arising, the staying, the changing, the passing. And we could do that as a practice. We could stay, you know, focus in on impermanence for a whole sitting, or we, one other ways of doing it, you can stay with one sense, stay with the arising and passing of sounds or body sensations, or notice that with thoughts. And do that for five minutes, do that for a sitting, and so forth. So a few more words about dukkha. Again, this, this resistance to being with the present moment. And we learn in our practice, can I be, we can be with the pleasant without grasping increasingly. Our practice takes us in that direction. I can be with the unpleasant when it's in the workable range without pushing it away. We move away from that tendency to believe deeply that grasping after the pleasant will bring happiness and pushing away the unpleasant. One of my first practices that I ever did was a very nice practice around dukkha uh, my first teacher was Joseph Goldstein. And uh, he gave me a practice very early on, probably in my first year or so, which was to notice if there's suffering, where's the attachment? Very good practice for us here. And I did that. You know, I did that really diligently. Every time there was suffering, oh, where's the attachment? <laughs> Right? And uh, beautiful practice for here, beautiful practice at home. I would do it at home, just, oh, I'm just really eager to see what was there. And of course, it's illuminating to do that, to really notice, to really notice um, how, that's, how that uh, mechanism is, is working. And so again, it's a practice we can do here to, to, uh, set the intention to track reactivity. Again, it could be for a sitting, 
for a day and just try in both the more gross reactivity, suffering, and the more subtle, the subtle pushing away, the subtle grasping. And just to notice that, what's it like, what's happening? When grasping is occurring, what's going on in the body? What's going on in the mind? What's going on in the emotional life? Similarly with the pushing away, the aversion leading to reactivity. So these can all guide practices uh, and guide our practice here to help us see into that, um, into these areas to develop that seeing, that freeze, that liberating insight. The third area is anatta or not self. And in some ways it's both more mysterious and can be more confusing than the other two. It's mysterious, really you could say that the whole question of self raises the issue of who am I? What is my nature? You know, who am I at my depths? You know, one of the great questions of the centuries in human life, who am I, right? And we, this is part of what we look at in our practice. We want to, we want to explore that. Another short part of a Rumi poem This is from a poem called The Tavern. Just a little bit of it. All day I think about it, then at night I say it. Where did I come from? And what am I supposed to be doing? I have no idea. (laughs) In a way that could lead to despair, but it also could be beginner's mind. (laughs) Don't know mind. Right, as Oren, I think it was Oren was saying last night about that quality of not knowing is so crucial to our practice. <clears throat> uh, the teaching of not self is, I believe, the most confusing of the three, or potentially confusing. And I'm gonna to try to take a more practical approach and point to ways of practicing to explore anatta or not self rather than give much of a concept, mostly conceptual overview. Really, I found this has really been an approach which has evolved from my own teaching, that I found it more helpful to identify ways of practicing as a way to illuminate not-self than to go into the, some of the complexities of what it means. So that's what I'll be doing, I'll, a little bit of the uh, complexities, but not too much. I wanted to start by just reminding us that it can be confusing. There's a piece of uh, Jewish uh, Buddhist humor, which is a a major development in the last 30 or 40 years. (laughs) Some of you know, and um, here, here it is. The Torah says, Love your neighbor as yourself. The Buddha says there is no self. So maybe we're off the hook. (laughs) I remember hearing from a a student of mine of a, a young man about 20 who went to a retreat, was told there was no self and left the retreat and dropped out of school. Because what's the point? Sad, you know, really painful, right? But some, you know, maybe, maybe not taught as skillfully as it might have been, I don't know. But it can lead to a lot of confusion. And it's also confusion, confusing because there seem to be words, even in the Buddhist text, that seem to point to a self. In some context, uh, a very developed practitioner is called a maha-atta which means a great self. It's the same word that was used for Gandhi, Mahatma, you know, is a great self. Or there's also uh, another word, another phrase for a uh, advanced practitioner is a uh, developed self. 
a Bahavit Atta, someone who has the first level of awakening, a stream entry, is sometimes called a big person. <laughs> so you have these, you know, so it can be a little bit confusing. Um, there's also, it also seems that uh, there's a, there's a well-known text, which I thought I'd read, which is uh, where the Buddha is asked by uh, a wandering yogi named Vachagata, uh, very directly, he says, is there a self? And the Buddha stays silent. Then is there no self? And he stays silent. And then the yogi Vachagata leaves. <laughs> and after he had left, uh, Ananda, his attendant, was a little bit confused. You know, maybe saying, hey, why didn't you just teach about Anatta? You know, but uh, he asked him, why didn't you answer? And here's the Buddha's response. If Ananda, when I was asked by the wanderer of Vachagata, is there a self? I had answered, there is a self. This would have been siding with those ascetics and Brahmins who are eternalists. And if when I was asked by him, is there no self? I had answered, there is no self. This would have been siding with those ascetics and Brahmins who are annihilationists. Annihilationist. If I was asked by the wanderer of Achagota, is there a self? I had answered, there is a self. Would this have been consistent on my part with the arising of the knowledge that all phenomena are anatta, not self? No, venerable sir. And if when I was asked by him, is there no self, I had already answered, I had answered there is no self, the wanderer of Achagota, already confused, would have fallen into greater confusion, thinking, it seems that the self I formerly had does not exist now. Right, so I, you know, I, I read that some as really pointing to the the practical basis for the teaching and not holding too tightly to, to the terms or, or the concepts. And so you also have, uh, there's a, a time when Achan Cha, the great Thai teacher, Thai forest tradition teacher, was asked about self and not self and he said something very similar to the Buddha. He said, the teachings about no self are not true. The teachings about self are not true either. Right? So he's so he's really wanting to point to practice. So just this is where I'm trying to say it's a confusing area. <laughs> right? It's it's hard it can be hard to understand. And one other complexity which I'll bring bring up is that also people sometimes use the teaching of not self almost as a a reason to do what we call spiritual bypassing, right? So people can think there's no self, so I don't have to deal with some of my own developmental tasks, right? Or I remember, you know, I've sometimes had students who were just telling me about emptiness and not self, and I just said, I think it'd be really good if he got a job. They didn't like it, right? And, and so that can be used that way. And I'll, I'll come back to that point. So it's, it can be confusing in that way as well. Um, and so I'm gonna, I'm gonna give a more practical approach that try, tries to help us see how can I really explore? I think that's what Achan Cha was wanting to do. I think what the Buddha were wanting to do was to point really to the practical inquiry and not to get too hung up on the concepts and what really frees us, what is liberating. So I wanna talk about really three practical ways to explore anatta. And I'm gonna use the metaphor of exploring when the self is thick, a sense of self is thick and when there is a, a sense of self that can be more thinned out. So I'm gonna use the metaphors of thick and thin, which I got originally from Tina Rasmussen and Steven Snyder, who are, who are local teachers. 
And I'm gonna talk first of all about how we can open up to a sense of the flow of experience in which, in which there's not much sense of self. The self is somewhat thinned out and it's a very ordinary way that we can experience something like a anatta or not self. Then the second practical area is to explore when the self feels thick. When we have a kind of a strong sense of self, a big sense of self, it could be when we're reactive, have a lot of self-centered thinking and so forth, and just to explore that. And then thirdly, some further ways that we can develop a more thinned out sense of self uh, through meditative practices. The the first one will go in that direction some. So it's pretty much what I'm saying is that a practical way (coughs) to explore anatta is to learn to look at and work with the sense of self when it becomes thick. Study that, explore that. And then secondly, learn how to develop a way of experiencing in which there's increasingly a thinned out sense of self or less sense of self. And we're doing that all the time. I think we're doing all of those, both of those all the time. So that's what I want to explore. And I hope that this uh, helps make this uh, sometimes quite confusing area more practical. That's my aim, to have it be, so to have it, if we have a, so we can have a sense of, if I want to explore this, what's, what's a good way to do it practically in my practice? One of the simple ways, I think, and very accessible ways of understanding anatta is looking at what could be called uh, the experience of flow. When we have a sense of being with the flow of experience, being with the flow of phenomena without much sense of self. And this is a very common experience and I think we don't always realize how common it is. the, you know, I think it comes close to what there's a well-known psychologist na- named Mahali uh, Mahalaji, who developed the concept of flow. And some of, you, some of you probably know about that. And he said that with flow, a person is performing an activity fully immersed in a feeling of energized focus, full involvement and enjoyment in the process of the activity. Flow is characterized by complete absorption in what one does. So typically, no self-image, no self-consciousness, fully there. And I believe that we experience this quite a bit of the time outside of retreat as well as in retreat. When I'm fully with the dishes, I may be in a sense of flow. And of course, when I'm fully with the breath or mostly with the breath or with the movement of different parts of experience, there can be that sense of flow. A lot of people access that sense of flow, especially through art, through music, even something like sports can be, can bring up that sense of flow. Being with people one's very close to, there may be a sense of just the, not no self-consciousness, self-image, just being present, being there. And so I'm, I'm saying that partly to invite every, all of us to tune in to when that's there, even in the activities, even in the work meditations, when we're, when we're fully present. Uh, the jazz musician, John Coltrane, all a musician can do is get closer to the sources of nature and so feel that one is in communion with the natural laws. He says, that's what music aims at. We could say that maybe of art. It's very close to what Oren was talking about yesterday in terms of right understanding that can we come to see our experience more as just being with that flow of causes and conditions you know, in a certain way. And Coltrane's saying that that's what you know, a deep experience of music is. You know, or we can see that in sports. You know, I, I'm thinking of a time when um, uh, I remember watching uh, Michael Jordan in the uh, NBA Finals. I don't know how often Basketball is talked about on retreats. <laughs> but there's a very good example that in, in sports, they have the notion of being in the zone. 
which is kind of in the flow, not much sense of self, just fully there. And Michael Jordan in uh, one, I think one half of a game, had seven straight three-pointers. He was in the zone, zero self-consciousness, just there. And then he went by the scorer's table and he went like this. Maybe some of you have seen it. And what happened at that moment? Self-consciousness, sense of self. He missed his next shot. Right? And so you can see that, see that sense of, of zone. And listen for this. And listen, this is uh, another basketball player, Bill Russell, said this. He said, the qualities that we experience when we're in that fullness include profound joy, acute intuition, which at times feels like precognition, effortlessness in the midst of intense exertion, a sense of the action taking place in slow motion, feelings of awe and perfection, increased mastery and self-transcendence. Does that sound like our practice sometimes? (laughs) At its best, right? Right? And so, um, yeah, so there could be that lack of self-consciousness and sometimes, you know, it also brings out that sense of care and love, you know, that, that, that's there. And so a lot of our practice is learning better how just to be with the flow of experience. Can I just be, I'll come back to this, can I just be <clears throat> with the thoughts, the sensations, the emotions? Maybe we are outside. Can I just be with the flow of sound and just be with that? It's a way to train in that sense of flow. And you can notice I'm fully there, no sense of self. That I think is an experience of anatta. Very ordinary, right? No adding of me or mine, no reactivity. And so we can do that. And then we also notice the other side, what takes us away from the flow. We try to be with the flow of experience and then we notice what takes us away. That's our practice. In a very simple way, that's what we do. We try to be with the flow and we notice what takes us away. And that's the essence, I think, of practicing with anatta. It's that simple, right? Be with the flow without a sense of me or mine and see what takes us away from that, where there's that strong sense of self. So the second way of practicing is to look for when there is that thick sense of self, when the self gets big. And it has some complexities, which I'll I'll come to. And in in the teachings of the Buddha, as Oren pointed pointed out at the end of his talk, there's a naming of what's called Sakaya Ditti, which is the, the self view or personality view, it's sometimes translated as. And that this is really looking at experience through the lens of me or mine. You know, oh, my back hurts. Oh, woe is me. My meditation is deteriorating, (laughs) right? Or whatever, wherever we go. And so we can notice some of the different ways that the self becomes thick. This is to use that metaphor. And we just notice them again. We can be with them, study them, inquire. One of them is self-image. Has anyone had self-image of being a meditator? Good meditator, bad meditator? When I was first practicing, I think I had a, you know, like many of us probably, some of us, I, I thought of myself as an achiever. I won't ask for a show of hands. <laughs> But I, I um, you know, it's pretty hard to just sit here and know who's doing well and who's doing not. You know, we make up stories, right? We make up stories, who's the good meditator here? Who's the one who's not doing as well? You know, we have all sorts of stories, but we have actually very few workable criteria. <laughs> you know, for me, the ones I, I, I used at the time, what, what, what can you say? You, um, sit for a long time, and you stay up late. That's, those are the only two I could come up with. <laughs> right, so that's what I did, right? And you know, my, I, I did notice that my mentor at the time, 
My main mentor was Larry Rosenberg. Some of you know, founder of Cambridge Insight Meditation on the East Coast. And I noticed that Larry didn't sit for a long time and didn't stay up late. And I thought he was very, very wise, dear, compassionate person, but I was still determined to, you know, um, what, look like I was a good meditator. I won't tell stories of how that led to all sorts of suffering. <laughs> I think we know that, you know, and you know, I was thinking also of um, uh, James Barras tells, tells stories you might have heard of doing slow walking meditation and we're doing slow walking meditation and thinking, looking good. <laughs> looking good, so. So, you know, the, the humor around the thick self is helpful. Okay, because those stories are just like totally ridiculous, aren't they? But that's what we do. Especially, you know, where, where there, you don't have these clear criteria as how to, how to, how to look good, so you make up walking slowly. Anyway, um, this is from Achen Cha. We hear the words of the Dharma, such as, nothing is us or ours, and we may think we understand pretty well. When I began practicing, I meditated on the parts of the body and felt I had some insight into anatta and was becoming detached from things. Then one day, I lost a tooth. <laughs> oh, my tooth fell out. I'm getting old. All of a sudden, I was melancholy and disheartened as a thick self, right? It's a little bit like Oren's hair story. You know. Later on, I decided to go on tudong, ascetic wandering. It's supposed to be the practice of utmost simplicity. Usually you only take your alms ball and robes and a few essential items, such as a water strainer and a needle and thread. I thought I didn't have much attachment to possessions and could be content with little. But when I was putting things together to go, I couldn't bear to leave anything behind. <laughs> I packed up a huge bag and it started to look like it would be more than I could carry. Then I thought about my pillow and I decided I had to have that too. <laughs> everything seemed to be mine and everything seemed so necessary, even the coconut husk I used to polish the floor. <laughs> right, so he was doing that practice of looking at the thick self, right? And again, we can do it in really Simple ways, uh, notice self-image. See what it's about, investigate. What's it like in the body? What are the emotions? What are the narratives? Take it as a starting point for mindfulness and, and noticing. When there's sustained self-centered thinking, that would be an example of the thick self. Look into that carefully. When you're thinking, again, in a very self-oriented way, not that it's necessarily harmful, but we want to inquire into that. When there's reactivity, another major place to look at the, at the uh, thick sense of self. When we want to push away the unpleasant, grasp after the pleasant. And this happens a lot. You know, some of this can happen a lot in relationship to others at the retreat. Um, you know, I remember about seven or eight years ago, I had a very interesting experience, which was very revealing, just about how the thick self develops in relation to other retreatants. Have you noticed that sometimes? <laughs> right? And my experience was that I was sitting in the dining hall, and you know, for us as retreatants, you know, having our own space is important, right? Whether it's in the hall or the dining hall, it's important, it's important for me. And I noticed that I had a kind of an unwritten rule, which only I knew. <laughs> and maybe you've had this too, which was that if, um, if, if in the dining hall, there were open seats directly across from me and someone could actually sit somewhere else and not sit directly across from me and sit so there, was no, there weren't two people facing each other, it was good etiquette to do that. That was my rule. I expected other people to follow it, <laughs> even though it was not public, <laughs> right? And then, um, 
And then, of course, all, all the time my head's kind of down, you know, just paying attention to my food. And I noticed someone did that, but I didn't, I didn't really look carefully at the person. And I thought it was one person with whom I had a little bit of a Vipassana vendetta. And I thought, oh, it's that person again, again you know. And then I looked up and it was actually not that person. It was someone who I really thought was cool. <laughs> and the reactivity instantly went away. It was just, so, so watch those things. It really, just that's fascinating. It's a chance to watch the thick self in operation, right? So we can do that. You know, watch, watch what grasping feels like. You know, it's really fascinating. Um, once uh, my friend Diana Winston, who's a teacher some of you know, and I, we organized a class in, uh, in the Bay Area called Greed Management. <laughs> it, was, it was meant to look really carefully at grasping and greed. It's kind of patterned after anger management. We had extremely low enrollments. <laughs> But, so we ended up with two teachers and five students. <laughs> but, but the inquiry was amazing. We did really, it was really fascinating. I had never looked at grasping and greed so much. It's just something we can do here, really explore. What we found in the class was that just some of the characteristics, I mean, similar to some of what Arena was bringing up uh, a few nights ago, we found that, I found, we found that, uh, of course, there's with greed, there's self-centeredness. There's also a lack of sense of consequences. It's also often a sense of, uh, what, even privilege or I deserve this or something. And there could all, there's a total lack of interest in other people's needs. Right? It's too bad that defines the economic system. Short, short comment. <laughs> um, yeah, so, um, so we can look at that. We can look at the forms that the that the uh, thick self, the way it manifests in all those sorts of ways: reactivity, self-consciousness, self-image, uh, stories of the self, and so forth. And I just wanted to mention. A, some significant complexities that are important to bear in mind. And it's, um, it's that sometimes the thick self is there because there's a need for healing and transformation. It's not simply something to let go of. A lot of our practice, we would notice the reactivity, the self-image, we would inquire into it, look into it, maybe let go of it. But where there might be trauma or where there might be wounds, the self is going to appear in a thick way. And when we notice those, we want to acknowledge that there can be, that there's a need for healing. We don't want to simply say, let me let, we let go of my woundedness or my trauma. You can't do that. It's not functional. Sometimes before there, you know, in the past, before there was more sensitivity about this, people sometimes got that message in practice. Trauma would come up, just be with it, right? Not skillful, right? And so we really want to acknowledge that. And that can be, it can sometimes be the deep psychological material that sometimes comes up in, let's say, self-judgment. Not so easy just to notice it, let go of it. Sometimes we need to do deeper work with it a lot of which is best, can best happen outside of a retreat, a lot of which can happen skillfully with the right teachers, maybe in retreats, with the judgmental mind. Um, and so there, there can be a kind of developmental need to actually develop a healthy self, which is there, is there at times. Tanasaro Bhikkhu looks at not self in this way, I think recognizing that. He says, the issue is not what is my true self, but what kind of perception of self is skillful and when is it skillful? 
what kind of perception of not self is skillful and when is it skillful? So sometimes seeing a sense of self is skillful. He says, a sense of self is an important part of the practice, especially a sense of self that encourages responsibility, heedfulness, and care. Interesting, sort of the ethical dimension can require a sense of self. Sometimes you have to do one thing at one stage and turn around and, and erase it at another, he said. So sometimes you have to develop that self you know, more fully. It can come up also in a similar way sometimes if one is from a marginalized group where there's been a denial of a sense of self. You know, or Dr. King talked about turning nobodiness into somebodiness as an example. You know, and uh, also a place where the idea of simply letting go of the self could be unskillful. It could be a developmental map. So uh, Zenju Earthland Manual, who's uh, studied in the Zen teach, uh, tradition, some of you may know her. She wrote a quite uh, nice book called The Way of Tenderness, particularly looking into uh, race, gender, and sexuality. And she said, some of my Zen teachers said, we are delusional, there is no self. Others said, we are attached to some idea of ourselves. If I could just let go of being this and that, my life would be freed from pain. I thought for a time that perhaps I was holding on to my identity too tightly. By the way, she's an African-American woman. I needed to bring the validity of my unique individual and collective background to the practice of Dharma. Although my teachers taught us the absolute truths of Zen practice, they seemed to negate identity without considering the implications that identity can have for oppressed groups of people. The critique of identity overlooks the emotional, empowering, and positive effects of identity on those who are socially and politically objectified. Right. So again, we can hold it in a more developmental way. I think it's a crucial point. It brings complexity, right? It's not just, here's my thick self, get rid of it, let go. It's a little more complex. You have to bring in those subtleties. <clears throat> Then I want to return to that sense, you know, my, the last part of being with that flow of experience in our meditative practice and taking that further. Where, do, where does that go? And so in our core practice, we try to be with the flow of experience and we notice what gets in the way. Again, <clears throat> simplifying the, the teachings I'm giving or the practical pointers, it's to be with the flow of experience, increasingly without a thick self, and see when the thick self appears. That's it. That's the practice. That's the, for me, the practical meaning of anatta, is to look in those two ways. So we just notice the thoughts, the emotions. I think the core model that the Buddha gave for developing anatta was the model of the aggregates that we would just look at these fundamental materials of experience. Guy Armstrong says these are the stuff of experience, material form, body experience, uh, Vedana, the feeling tone, uh, perception, Sankara, which is more or less thoughts and emotions, and then consciousness. So we just try to, can I just be with experience without bringing in a sense of self, of me, or mine? from the Buddha, really making that point. <clears throat> well then, Sariputta, this is how the training should be done. Concerning the body with its consciousness, let there be no self-centered imaginings of I and mine, and no such bias. With regard to external objects, let there be no self-centered imaginings of mine, and no such bias. We shall then abide in the attainment of the heart's liberation, and the liberation by wisdom. So it's saying at those times in our practice, when we can be with that flow and open up to that. And when it's appropriate to let go of that sense of self as it's manifesting again through thinking, reactivity, self-consciousness, self-image, we can do that.
the heart practices can also take us towards a sense of not-self. The sense of love, of compassion can take us into a way of being in which we have that sense of interdependence. A story from the Buddha. He approached three monks, Anuruddha, Nandiya, Kambiya, and he greeted them as Anuruddhas. Gave them one name. How is it that you Anuruddhas are living together on friendly terms and harmonious as milk and water blend, regarding one another with the eye of affection? Anuruddha spoke of having developed metta in regard to acts of body, speech, and mind. We have diverse bodies, but there is only one mind and heart. This has been developed by metta, the sense of that connection. We no longer prefer, he said, our own happiness over that of others. And as we deepen in our practice, we can start to work through more subtle dimensions of the self as well. There's what I, I, I like to call the meditative self. Have you noticed, noticed that there's a meditative self? It's kind of directing things. <laughs> it's very helpful. No problem. You know, saying, okay, you know, sit up straight or do this or do that. And also sometimes takes pride in accomplishments, right? And so there's a meditative self, kind of a meditative doer, right? And interesting, you know, it's a, it can be more subtle, you know, and I remember one retreat where I was given instructions for like a week. Don't do anything, including any meditation. But don't be distracted. (laughs) And there I was, I was practicing like that. And I noticed that I really was enjoying doing nothing because one of the core identities of a self is being a doer, very strong. Maybe you feel that on retreat sometimes. It's certainly strong for me. And so I was really enjoying not doing things. And then I noticed myself commenting, I'm really doing non-doing well. (laughs) Right? So the, the doer was even claiming to be responsible for not doing. And so... As we deepen in practice, there's a kind of sequence which can open up. We may be practicing with choiceless awareness, which has already thinned out the sense of the the dimension of will from our meditative self. And as we keep practicing with choiceless awareness, and there's pretty good stability of mind, we can be with the flow of experience We can notice any stuckness or fixation, but we may increasingly have a sense of the flow of phenomena. Many of our habitual tendencies to conceptualize may start falling away. We can start being more with phenomena without without so much conceptualization. It winds down to a certain extent. And there aren't so much objects or even distinct emotions, but there's more like a flow of non-conceptualized phenomena. We can open to that, that's sort of further thinning of the self, but there's still, in a way, a watcher. There's still a watcher, there's a meditative self that's watching. At a certain point, one can let go of that watching. And one can open up, when, when there's a lot of stability of mind, one can open up What opens up is a kind of open awareness in which phenomena are still occurring, but there's no longer a meditative self watching. In a way, it's a further thinning of the self, opening up into awareness. And the Buddha speaks of this more advanced awareness. He talks about it being increasingly signless, boundless and all luminous. We can open up to that. In the Thai forest tradition, it's sometimes called the radiant mind or the primal mind. Achan Sumedho calls it natural consciousness. 
We tune, we tune in more to that sense of a, of a large awareness that holds everything. No or little sense of self. Something like holding all the phenomena in the sky and being present in that way. One of the other great teachers in the Thai forest tradition, Mei-Chi Chow, who was a student of Achan Man, really the core teacher founding the Thai forest tradition, she said this. She spoke of a, a, a luminous essence that seemed boundless, yet wondrously empty, permeated everything. Everything seemed to be filled by a subtle quality of knowing. Cleansed of the things that clouded and obscured her nature, her mind revealed its true power. So I wanna close with two readings. One of them is pointing to that sense of being with the flow of experience. And the second is pointing again to that quality of of awareness. So this is from, again, from Achan Cha. The mind of a true practitioner is like still water that flows. The stillness is the steadiness and the flow is being with the phenomena. The mind of a true practitioner is like still water that flows or flowing water that's still. Whatever takes place in the mind of a Dharma practitioner will have that quality. Only flowing is not correct, only still is not correct. When we have this experience of practice, our minds will be in this condition of flowing water that is still. In our Dharma practice, we have samadhi or tranquility and wisdom mixed together. Wherever we sit, the mind is still and it flows, still flowing water. Whenever this occurs in the mind of one who practices, it is something different and strange. It is different from the ordinary mind that one has known all along. Before, when it was moving, it moved. When it was still, it didn't move, but it was only still. The mind can be compared to water in this way. But through meditation, it enters a condition that is like flowing water being still. Whatever we are doing, the mind is like water that flows yet is still. Making our minds like this, there are both tranquility and wisdom. And then from Achan Mahabua, another one of the great uh, teachers in the Thai forest tradition, again, whom I was uh, privileged to spend some time with. When dukkha is completely stopped, nothing remains. All that remains is an entirely pure awareness. This is not even a noble truth. It's the purity of the heart and mind. If you want, you can call it nibbana. There's nothing against calling it whatever you want. All I ask is that you know this marvelous, extraordinary dhamma. So I hope that this has been a way of uh, giving some simple practical pointers. Mm. That can help us with, with an area that sometimes is confusing and that can suggest these very simple ways of practicing. Be increasingly with the flow of experience and see what gets in the way. See where there's that thick sense of self.
So thank you again for your kind attention and your practice. It's really, we, we honor you. We honor your practice and thank you for that and your listening. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.